0: Long story short, I think I just was like, I cannot keep waking up and being not dead inside, but just like not feeling anything, almost numb. And I can't wake up every morning and not be excited to go to work when I'm spending 10, 12 hours at work every day.
1: I want to get to the bottom of how they first discovered their passion, how they channel their talent consistently, and ultimately how their active ingredient is making the world a better place. This week's episode is with B. Shapiro. B. is the longtime New York Times beauty columnist and also the founder of Ellis Brooklyn, a clean luxury fragrance brand that she launched in 2015 and it actually happens to be the fragrance I've been using for close to four months now before even knowing that B was the founder, which I thought was pretty crazy. The scent that I'm using is Salt, and we do get into all the different scents that they offer, but I just thought that that was a really cool, full circle moment. B found out she was pregnant with her first baby girl, Alice, at the height of the clean beauty movement, and she began looking for alternative fragrances that felt both luxurious and also safe and clean for her while she was pregnant, and she just simply could not find it on the market. So what started out as a side hustle is now an award-winning brand and leader in the high growth clean prestige fragrance market. And she's currently carried at Sephora, Ulta, Revolve, Credo, and several others. I absolutely loved Bee's unconventional road to where she is today. She is just so candid in this episode about not having to think through those big steps or at least like what her process was of having taken leaps throughout her career and what she wished that she did know earlier. In today's episode, we get into her background and why she originally decided to go to law school for stability reasons, the whole process of her leaving law to start from scratch and build a network from the bottom up, how she transitioned to journalism and her road from covering the fashion industry to then beauty, why this idea stood out to her more than every other business idea she previously had, her approach to marketing fragrance and what actually resonates when trying to sell something that you actually can't smell. And why accountability is an essential part of sticking to something, getting it off the ground, and ultimately executing. So with that, let's get into this week's episode with B Shapiro. I, I wanted to tell you a funny story because I actually, so in the pandemic, I was in Miami, which is where I'm from. And as everyone else was like trying to find like little self-care things, I bought a gua sha from Credo and it was delivered to me in Miami and it came with little samples of things. And one of them was the Ellis Brooklyn salt sample. Um and I tried it and I was like, damn, like I never even care about samples, and like I really like the smell. And first of all, I had no idea that you were the, like nothing. I literally just, I literally just like smelled something and I was like, damn, that smells incredible. And I dropped it in my kitchen and it shattered. But our kitchen smelled incredible for like two weeks. And I was like, damn, I never want this smell to end. And then I came back to Brooklyn and I just went to Credo because it's like literally like my happy place. And I saw mm-hmm. the full bottle and I was like, damn, I need it. So I bought it and it's been my scent since. And then I got really? the email. Yeah. And then I got the email to interview you. And then I put two and two together and I was like, wait, this is cr- I, like I'm currently wearing salt right now. <laughs>
0: Like, that's amazing. I know so, I thought
1: you would appreciate that little story. I, I have no idea it was your it was your product.
0: And completely organic. like that's literally the best story because I also think with fragrance, it's more personal than anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean of course, look, if I made lipsticks, I'd also be happy if somebody wore my lipstick. But I think fragrance is so intimate that it's it like really the is compliment.
1: It really is but like and and also it's interesting like from like a pr and marketing viewpoint that like a sample got me at that level like mm. I've gotten so many samples of things in my life and like nothing sticks that this one did and like yeah. got it I mean I didn't i didn't like seek it out but when I saw it I remembered it and I was like damn I need the full bottle and then ah I it.
0: that's amazing
1: yeah it thank was you so
0: much'm yeah, i so flattered
1: i I love it I feel like it's like more summary so I need to like look into your more like woodsy, um, sure. sense for the fall. So you have to give sure. me a recommendation, but yeah, I okay. wanted to just let you know that little story because I thought it was like very, very cool when I got the email and I was like, this is full circle. It's literally my scent now. So yeah, obviously I'll have around the podcast
0: <laughs> meant to be.
1: Yeah. So I always kick off active ingredient, asking the guest what they were like as a kid that they remember. Um, mm. and if you find that you have any kind of like similar qualities from when you were a kid in your personality traits today,
0: so it's interesting. I think it's funny because when you become a grown up, uh, you tend to forget some of the things you were. And now, because I have two little girls, I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old. You start to see pieces of yourself in them. You're like, "Oh my gosh! Actually, yes, this was the way I was." You know, whether it's a good or a bad thing, you're seeing both. You know, mm-hmm. and I think one thing that I've really noticed from raising my little girls is that one of my youngest, Sky, is a real risk taker. Like she's that person who's just going to like jump off something in the gym, like no holds barred, we'll just run and jump. And I realized, oh my gosh, that's me. That's me to a T. And I was also the second child of two sisters. I have an older sister. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has definitely carried over to today because I think there is I don't want to say fearlessness because I do have fear. It's I don't think that it's not lack of fear. I think it's just like, well, I'm going to go do it anyways. Like recognizing and, it and
1: still being able to do it. And still doing it. Yeah.
0: Yes. And I also do like taking risks. There's something thrilling about it. And I think that most entrepreneurs, there is sort of a risk tolerance there, right? That might be a little bit higher. Um, otherwise I'm not sure if you look at, if you sit there and you do all that market research and you look at all the things like, why would you start a perfume brand? It's crazy mm-hmm. out there. There's mega brands out there. It's hard to market in many ways because you that's can't, that's one of my see,
1: questions. You, you can't I can't, I've always wondered, like even before prepping for this, like it's one thing I've always been so curious about, but we'll definitely get to there. So you would say that like the risk taking quality is one that you see. From your childhood, you see it in your daughter. And that's something that's a a through line with your adulthood now, clearly yes, starting out. I'm curious, like when you become a mom, do you think that that level of fearlessness or like recognizing fear and still going for it changes at all, or that you have like more levels of like making sure that it makes sense to take the risk?
0: It definitely changes. So I think that when you become a parent, whether a mom or dad, right, like your level of risk tolerance does change because you have other people dependent on you. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure some, I, I'm sure I know some parents out there who maybe don't take this risk calculus as seriously, but I definitely think about it because I have this risk. I don't want to say I'm risky, but I like, I want to go for something that yeah. I, I have to like dial back and be like, okay, does this make sense? Right. Does mm-hmm. it make sense to make this huge investment purchase now? Or does it make sense sense to go and start this other thing now when I have so much going on. So I also really, really think about my time now because there's risks and then there's time, right? Time is the most precious resource. So it's like, how can we maximize our time? And because I'm also a parent, that calculus gets into play too. So definitely, I mean, it's not that I'm tempering risks. It's just that, okay, I see the risk. Let's say I want it. uh, But now I have to think about it a little bit more.
1: Yeah, totally. So I'm curious, what did you think that you wanted to be? Like, what was your first thought of what your career was going to look like? I mean, I've done some research and I feel like you've been all over the map and have had an incredible career. Um, But what was like, yeah, what was your idea of what your life was going to look like when you were younger? And then walk me through like those first early jobs. (laughs)
0: So I think it's really interesting today when I hear about young people's stories and everybody seems so organized and gung ho. And, and you know what, if you're one of those kids that like knew what they wanted to do since they were 12, good for you. You know, I truly had no idea. Me too. I'm like, look at the,
1: they're going to be that person who's on like Forbes 25 under 25. That's literally, I mean, it's honestly why I have this podcast because it's like, I, I, it's more interesting to me for the person that like, it took a while to figure out, you know, yes. like, I feel like that's like the majority of, of people, but I'm so fascinated by people that have figured it out at a young age and like have had a calling and gone for it. But uh, yes. today they- I'm not on that same page. Cause I'm not on it either. <laughs>
0: I'm not that person. It took me a good while. And I think the reason it took me a good while is because I didn't know, you know, like I had so many different interests and I had so many things I liked. But how do you know what you love? I think that's a big demarcation, right? Because the truth is we could do a lot of things at work, right? Mm -hmm. Like, sure, I could be an accountant. I might hate it, but I could do it. You know, sure I could go study this. Sure, I could do that. But I think really finding your passion early on that wasn't really taught to me. So I had to like figure that out later. I went to public school. I went to a not very good public school. They didn't teach you how to chase your passions. Mm They just try to like get you through and like get you to the next stage. So I think for me, I, I just was like, I don't want to say surviving, but like my early jobs, my very first job, people are going to laugh. but My very, very first job was at foot action as a 14 year old. (laughs) (laughs) i i i know they just opened in the local mall i know wait also is that is that is
1: that even
0: legal i don't think so you know Maybe I was 15. I'm not sure. I was quite young. And I remember thinking, I remember knowing that I couldn't work above X amount of hours because I was so young. They don't allow you to like X amount of hours. Um, let me tell you, people, shoe salespeople, kudos to you because it is not a glamorous job taking, taking shoes and putting on shoes on feet. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was a whole thing. Uh, after that, I was a hostess at a, at a restaurant, as a hostess at a seafood restaurant. It was the worst outfit of my life. It was like a midi pleated skirt. Uh, and you had to wear these like clog, you know, those like clog restaurant shoes. And it was like a tapestry vest with like a white shirt underneath. That we was my next job.
1: That new Instagram trend of like where it started. <laughs> where <we're> at. <laughs>
0: You know pleats are in right now, but it's the true. pleats that I was wearing were not. Were not in. <laughs> and I mean a tapestry vest. I'm not sure where that ever was in. No. Uh, oh so I was God. a hostess there. I mean I'm not sure I learned that much. It was it was a relatively like you know upscale seafood shack place. Um, I guess the only, <laughs> the only thing I did learn is like don't eat too much clam chowder in bread bowls. <laughs>
1: You know what? That is a very valuable learning.
0: Thank you. I I messed that one
1: up. I messed that one up two weeks ago. So if I would have learned that working in a seafood restaurant, I wouldn't have had that mess up. So I
0: could have saved you. Uh, So, so I mean, I'm not that kid who like had an internship. I hear people have internships now in high school. I'm like, what? I was just trying to make a few dollars to pay for my tennis tournaments. You know, I played tennis. So, and then I taught some tennis lessons in the, in the summer at at my high school. I mean, it was just like odd jobs. And then I went to college. I still did not know what I wanted to do. I think the reason why is because I didn't grow up with a lot of means. So I remember thinking, well, I got to do something where I make a decent amount of money. And then I got to do this. I got to do that. I was so rational with it when I was in college. And the funny part was I was trying to be so rational. And at the end of the day, nothing worked out. So I still had odd jobs in college. I did not have a job lined up after college because well, I never did, did an internship. Him? I studied finance as my major and I minored in art.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, so when you were thinking stability, what were you thinking that you were going to, like, what was the job was that you wanted in, to line up?
0: I thought I was going to work in finance. <laughs> the, the funny part today is I have a CFO for the company and it is my, I am not I'm not good at finance. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, why did I even study that? It was bizarre.
1: I'm curious, like what, what were your, were your parents like guiding you during this time? Like when you were like trying to figure out what the stability is, I'm just like so fascinated by like the different generations and like seeing our generation, like the millennial generation being so much more open to risk and like chasing more of this like mission driven type of career Mm -hmm. path where like, I feel, and I could be wrong on this, but like what I keep reading about is Gen Z being more traditional and actually going for more stability. But then the, the generation, the boomers are also more, more on the stable path, I guess. So it's just like interesting from like generation to generation, like how it kind of evolves. And I'm just curious to see like what your parents or like what, what your relationship to them, like kind of influenced the way that you um, chose that path or that first path.
0: Sure. So I think for me, the layered part in there is that we're immigrants. So I, I'm actually first generation. So I came here from Taiwan when I was three and a half, almost four. And that plays so much into it because my parents were working all the time. Mm-hmm. So they actually had very little say in my choices your career path. I think it's more that I put the pressure on myself because I was like, well, you know, they're working all the time, you know, like I need to be able to take care of myself. So it was more that it was like the sort of pragmatic, like, Ooh, I should study finance side Mm -hmm. of things. I I don't, (laughs) the truth is it kind of delayed me on my path, right? Like I really should have been looking for something I really, really love. Because if you look at, if you back out and you look at life, we're spending so many hours at work, That it's really hard today, especially when people don't just have nine to five jobs, Mm -hmm. right? Like, let's be honest, our jobs are like nine to like eight, nine to nine. Like they're so long and so Mm involved that we have to love what we do because otherwise it's misery. You yeah. know, you can't just cut off suddenly at five PM. So, uh, so if I had known that to like go for the passion, I probably would not have gone on this meandering path because I did not have a job lined up after college, even though I had grades. It's probably because I didn't do any internships. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, I worked at Kenneth Cole, and I worked at <laughs> <This> <laughs> and I worked good. at another restaurant, and this time I was a server. So I was just doing these weird odd jobs, and so. I took, I decided I was like, well, you know what? I don't have a job lined up. What am I going to do? All my friends are going to their jobs. This is like, oh my, I can't be the person who's still, you know, not knowing anything, doing these weird, odd part-time jobs. Mm-hmm. And so I took the LSAT. I I bought a book at Barnes and Nobles. I practiced a few LSATs and I took the LSAT and I went to law school.
1: <laughs> that's like honestly hilarious because it's like one of those career paths, just like being a doctor that's like, no, no, you're like signing up for like life, you know, and you just did yeah. it on a whim. That's pretty funny.
0: Somebody should have shook me and told me (laughs) that right because I mean it's it's actually silly. It's actually like why did oh you didn't have a job you decided to go to law school like that makes no sense.
1: So okay so you took the LSAT and went to law school you're you're thinking you're going to be a lawyer Um, how long did this last for? At what point were you like, okay, this is absolutely not for me. I'm not sure why I did this on a whim. I feel like on on some level, because like you had struggled and like seen other friends, like getting jobs on some level, it should have been kind of like, um, giving you that validation that like you were able to get that it's a, it's a, one of the harder career paths. So I feel like on some level it probably helped kind of give you the confidence to think of other things. So I'm just curious, like what was like that whole thought process at what point were you like, okay, this is actually not for me, but I'm actually capable of doing something else.
0: So it's, I think that that pragmatism that I have obviously benefits me today, like running a business, but back then it held me back a little bit. So I started law school, my first year of law school, I hated it. I was like, this is not, it's a very rigid learning in a way. It did, mm. it does teach you to work really hard. So I always am grateful for my law school education, but I knew right away it was not for me, but I didn't have the bravery. I mean, what else was I going to do? I didn't have anything else lined up. Like, I was going to be a law school dropout on top of not having, you know, <laughs> a job lined up. So I sort of cabined myself into all these things instead of like sitting down figuring out what it is I'm actually interested in. And it was almost like, what society thinks is okay, right? Okay, it's okay to go from undergrad to law school, right? That's respected, but it's not okay to like take, it was less respected, I think, back in the day to take a year off and figure it out, right? Mm -hmm. So so I went to law school after my first year. I was like, oh my gosh, I hated this. I remember going to the career counselor and being like, look, I don't know law schools for me. She's like, look, don't worry. Uh, Law school, really, honestly, first year is the worst and it gets much better. So I was like, okay, okay. Um, I went to an internship in Brazil in São Paulo, and the job was so boring. It was at a law firm. And uh, I remember coming back from this internship telling the career counselor, You know what? I did my internship for the summer after first year. I love Brazil. Hated the job, you know, (laughs) had an amazing time in Brazil. I'll
1: go back to Brazil,
0: but not to that law firm. Give
1: me a different job.
0: (laughs) Exactly. She's like, you know what though? Brazilian law practice is very different from U.S. law practice. Don't let that be a judgment. Basically, every time I let myself get convinced. And I finally, I graduated from law school. I took a job at a big New York law firm. I moved to New York And long story short, I think I just was like, I cannot keep waking up and being not dead inside, but just like not feeling anything, almost numb. And I can't wake up every morning and not be excited to go to work when I'm spending 10, 12 hours at work every day. So literally, and this is not very mature. I think now looking back, I was like, wow, that was sort of like a very abrupt. I woke up one day. I was like, I can't do this anymore. So I was only an attorney in New York city at a big law firm for about eight months. Wow. Yeah. And I turned was in my there like a, a straw
1: that broke the camel's back. Like what, like that morning that you woke up, like what happened that you were just like, enough is enough. And I'm willing to take the risk again. So a week
0: before that, I, I was on a flight and I remember being on the flight and then the flight was so rocky and so much turbulence. And I remember thinking, oh my God, if this is, if this plane's going to go down, I feel like my life is unlived. You know, like I, I didn't, I didn't feel fulfilled. Like I didn't go for it. So that, I mean, I don't know if it's an epiphany so much. I was like, okay, Like it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just go for it. You know, you have one life to live, and like what what is there to stop you from living that life?
1: Myself, apparently. That's crazy. So that happened a week prior to you waking up and saying, Okay, this is enough. I'm done. Did you like prep anything in that week? Like what was your what was your plan? See, I didn't have a plan. So this is why so
0: I was twenty six then. I'm 39 now. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" If I'm looking back at my 26-year-old self, it actually would have gone a lot smoother if I had a plan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it happened exactly um, how it should. So
0: yeah, I remember I had like a little bit of savings in my bank account from the months I did work as a attorney, Not a lot. Um, I still had to work a lot of jobs after I quit. Um, I I did get more organized, but when I actually made that decision to quit, I was not organized
1: but like, so what, what did you do? <laughs> so you had these oh like, si- yeah, like what, like what did you actually do? Like, uh, so you had these side jobs, like what, what came next and like how much time in between like you kind of like taking these odd jobs and like having like those savings run out, like what was happening during that time?
0: I know this story is like confessional isn't it I
1: know like give me <laughs> because... give me the juice because I mean I've had people on that like saved for 6 months or I've had people that like just did it on a whim and then like figured it out the next day like it's kind of like run the gamut on what has happened to people and how they do it but like this is the most interesting part you know like when you don't know and maybe don't have a plan like walk us through what that actually felt mm-hmm. like and then when it started to stick
0: Sure. So after the the quitting part became real, which means that I stopped going in, because it took about two weeks, right, mm-hmm. for that to really activate, I guess, and become real, I, I remember thinking that New York is full of dreamers. It's like an LA or Paris or any major city, right? And so I definitely saw people in my circle and also just, you know, in the city that were going after a dream. And I think that's unique for these big cities, right? People move to this city to go after a dream. What I did not want to become, though, is a stereotype because you also see people come shoot for this dream, maybe don't put all the legwork behind it to go after this dream, right? Because I think a lot of times dreams are sexy. Dreams are like wonderful. Dreams are perfect. But actually when you get down to the nitty gritty, they're hard. And to make that change was extremely hard. So I I sat down and I quote unquote got organized. I wrote out a list and I wrote out, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to hold myself back because if I'm going to quit Let's let's go for it. So I wrote down this list of possible jobs that I wanted, possible careers in my dream of dreams I even thought about. <laughs> and one was being a writer. Uh, one was being a fine artist. Um, one was being an actress. <laughs> this is so Ooh, embarrassing. No, um, there's no reason why, by the way, I should be an actress because I never trained. I never did anything really. I, I mean, I did a school play in like eighth grade or something. <laughs> this, there's just no reason. Right. But I was like, Ooh, that wouldn't be an amazing job. You know, I was 26 years old and, uh, and I, and I forced myself, you know, writing these things down. I was like, okay, how, how do I activate actually on each of these? Because a lot of people say they want to be this. They want, a lot of people say they want to be that, but they don't actually put in the legwork. Right. So that was how I got organized. Like, okay, I'm going to pursue these three avenues, like really hardcore and see where it comes
1: to be, and so I realized very quickly. You pursued I went, all uh, three at the same time. I pursued all three at the same time. I think it's interesting and like a good point to say that it's like first of all, kudos to you to like even write down a list of like what the potential like avenues could be, but then also like the actual action steps that would take to get there. I feel like that's where a lot of a lot of people fall off. It's like yes, it actually takes like so much for all of these different things. So I'm very impressed that you not only did that list, but then executed on three at the exact same time. That's pretty crazy.
0: <laughs> so I worked for an art collector, and then I bought all these canvases, spent all my money on a bunch of art materials, and then I also started uh, looking at auditions on backstage. <laughs> oh my god! And I went on a bunch of—I mean, these auditions are straight embarrassing. I'm so glad I lived. This was in an era where things weren't recorded so much. <laughs> 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 um, I I went. I mean, looking back, it's shocking, right? I went on auditions for Broadway. I had no experience. There wasn't that many roles for Asians. So I real I, uh, I auditioned for Miss Saigon. Stop.
1: This is the best. I think This is one of my favorite stories I've had on Octo Ingredient. I'm I mean, obsessed. I can't.
0: Uh, I auditioned. What else did I audition for? I auditioned for Joe's Pub. I auditioned for Shakespeare in the Park. Stop.
1: <laughs> How long were you doing this for?
0: Uh, the discovery portion of this was like a good year. Wow. And I quickly realized I am not cut out for acting. Like one thing that I learned from that experience is, my goodness, going on auditions takes real temerity, like real strength, because people are looking at you like you're a piece of speck on their shoe, you know? And you're trying to do something funny and no one's laughing. Oh my goodness. It's like the worst. Oh, my uh, God. I can't imagine.
1: I, I've done it like one. I, and by the way, it wasn't even an audition. I, I was in Washington Square Park, and this person stopped by, and they're like, "We're doing a Coca-Cola ad. Like, do you want to come audition for it?" And I was like, "Okay." I was with my best friend, and we're like, "Okay." We like practiced so hard, and then it's like a room of twenty people, and I, I like was like, uh, uh, I couldn't get the sentence out.
0: Yes, <laughs> yes, it's horrible. I it couldn't be. And like I was too like, "Okay,
1: high. not for me. Next." <laughs>
0: It's like, it's horrifying.
1: It's horrifying. And like, I work in PR. So like, I'm like very, very accustomed to rejection all the time. There's a difference between rejection over email and rejection in a room of 20 people. Very different.
0: Exactly. When I interviewed for Joe's Pub, I was supposed to do a comedic monologue. It was in front of a panel of eight people and it was supposed to be funny and no one laughed.
1: (laughs) What great like what great uh value from that though? Like that you are able to public speak and do it like you still did it. Like that's ama- an amazing learning about yourself. It's pretty incredible.
0: I did it. Thank god I don't have to do it again. <laughs> so third uh, avenue
1: was writing and you tried that one. Yes. Out.
0: Yes. So I worked for Art Collector. I did I did do some paintings. I was in a couple group shows in Soho. Uh but the truth is, you know what I realized about painting? I couldn't get what the vision i had in my head exactly the way i wanted out in my project and i realized then that i just probably didn't have enough talent for it because i think the true artists they have a vision and then they execute it exactly the way they had it envisioned and i couldn't i couldn't ever get there i couldn't get to that precise level of expression with with art at least and so with writing i could and it was so satisfying and And I wasn't writing creative writing. I wanted—I was covering the intersection of art, actually, and fashion during that time. There's a lot of these collaborations happening, and I was actually covering fashion more in the beginning. So I wasn't covering beauty so much, and I was covering some pop culture stuff. And uh, I was always really obsessed with fashion growing up. So I was like, you know what? If I'm going to start writing, I'm going to cover what it is that I want to write about, and not necessarily make it this like high-level literature thing. So. Um, so yeah, I started, this was the start of the blog era and, uh, I wrote for for some cool blogs and then I wrote for, I ended up rolling that snowball. I started writing for places like style.com and, uh, How did you get those first
1: gigs? Like, were you just cold emailing without any like writing samples and being like, give me a shot?
0: So I started writing for the small blogs. I used those as writing clips and then I Mm. cold pitched. Wow. Yeah. I started writing for the New York times on a cold pitch. So I was working for Do you think that still arc?
1: works? Sorry to, sorry to interrupt, but like, do you think oh, that that would okay. still work today?
0: I think cold pitches work if you have the right access. So the part that I didn't fully realize, but now looking back, I was like, oh, that's how I got in, you know, because mm. I was too young. I didn't really know the industry that well. I was working for an art collector that was really high profile and I was in the art world and I was seeing these art world things happen across with fashion. So I had access, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I pitched a story to the New York Times, it was about an art collaboration into fashion that they didn't know about. And it was also, I pitched two stories, I remember. And there was another one where it was like an artist where all the cool kids hang out at his apartment, you know? Mm. So it was access. And now, in retrospect, I was like, "Oh, those were brilliant pitches." <laughs> yeah, because you know I was young and I had access. A lot of times, reporters and editors they get older and older; they don't have access to this youth culture, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, so that's really how I got in. So I do think cold pitches work. I think that too often I see pitches that are too long. They just need to be like, if it's a good pitch, it should be like two sentences, maybe three. You know, it shouldn't take like some of these times I get these emails now. I'm like, oh my gosh, no one's reading this.
1: I'm mm-hmm.
0: reading this to be kind, but uh, but like no one's gonna accept this. Um, and uh, and on top of that, it was just like a it it was a time, timing, right? Because there was this intersection between art and fashion happening. So that, because I didn't want to be an art writer, interestingly enough. I wanted to cover fashion. So so yeah. So that's how it started. What year was that? Oh my gosh. Um so two thousand two thousand. 2008 or 9? It's either 2008 or 9.
1: So cool. So, how long were you writing for? And, like, walk us through all of your different writing gigs. And, I mean, you still write today. So, I, yeah, I'm curious to know how this whole thing started and at what point you started thinking about potentially starting an actual business. Mm,
0: yeah. So interestingly enough, I actually tried to get a full-time job at several magazines. No one hired me because they said, well, you're an ex-lawyer. Why would you want to have this assistant position? Or why would you want to have... I even tried to get internships. They're like, you're too old to be an intern because you already went to grad school and had like this other so career. So what, like 28? Uh, at this point, I was like 26, 27.
1: Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. So you quit. you quit... The lawyer. When I job quit, at-
0: I was twenty six.
1: Okay. And then you had that explore this exploratory yep. year. So it's like yep. twenty six, twenty like to twenty
0: seven. 28, maybe, okay. yeah. But I would say like twenty seven. Okay. I I I couldn't get a job. So long story short, I, I just started freelancing for all these different places and I started my own LLC for all my writing work.
1: So how did I you know guess- to do that?
0: Oh my goodness, I don't know. Maybe some people told me. I feel like LLC is like somebody tells you at some point,
1: like you should start an LLC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? For sure. It's just, I like to ask all these detailed questions because, like, so many people don't know those things, you know? So it's like. True,
0: true. You yeah. do an LLC for multiple reasons for anybody out there thinking about starting their own thing. One thing is, you know, you just want to protect yourself because mm-hmm. it offers you a corporate structure um, that's really easy to set up. That protects you. Yeah. And uh and then the other aspect that helps you organize your taxes. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing everything under like personal, then it's really hard to separate your business expenses from your, you know, personal expenses. And this way you're under a totally separate thing. So I have a separate bank account for it, I have a separate credit card for it, you know, all my checks are going to that account if mm-hmm. it's for works reasons, you know. So Yeah. So I do Thank think you it's for that. really quick. Yeah, of, <laughs> yeah course, so
1: you, of course. So you LLC'd and you were freelance writing. Um, how long were you doing that for? And that was like the majority of your, of your job. At what point did you start thinking about starting an actual physical product? Um, and I think that you started in fashion and then you started getting more and more into the beauty space, correct?
0: I did. So beauty was a lot so I, I went from T, writing for T, the New York Times Magazine, to the paper when the T Magazine editor group went to W. So this is a while ago now. Um, and I moved over to the paper purely just by writing the paper editor at the time.
1: <laughs> <Wow>.
0: <laughs> I'm telling you guys, sometimes it's just worthwhile to send out. It's not even a blind pitch so much as it is like a really reasonable, like, this is what I can offer. So I, I basically wrote the the editor of the style section and said, you know, I'm a regular contributor to TV, New York Times Style Magazine. That group is leaving and they're going to W. They don't have much of a freelance budget. So I just want to tell you, this is what I cover, XYZ. And like, if you need any story ideas or pitches or whatever, I'm here. So he gave me an assignment and I basically had, I remember this assignment because I was like, oh my God, I have to chase these girls down. It was the Court and Clarence sisters. It was the Clarence, this, the Clarence heiresses. Mm-hmm. And I chased these girls down during fashion week because they were like popping up as these mysterious blondes, you know, in front row. <laughs> and uh, it was such an important story because that sort of cemented my ability to contribute to the paper because I did get the story. And, and at the time it was really hard to get the story because they apparently had promised something to Vogue, but I somehow got one of the girls to talk anyway. So we scooped Vogue. It was this whole like drama thing, but, uh, but my editor, the good old days.
1: I love that time. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Remember when it mattered, like uh, my exclusive or whatever in print.
1: I had, Uh, um, Aliza Licht on and we were talking about just like how different it was then. And it just, uh,
0: so I much love more Aliza, by the way. Yeah, she's amazing. Uh, she's so smart. Uh, mm. So, so yeah. So I, so that I literally I'm the queen of cold emails apparently.
1: <laughs> I love it. So, okay. So, so talk to me about when you were ready to kind of, or how you conceptualize this idea. Like, did you ever have, I guess freelancing is entrepreneurial in and of itself, but like, did you have an idea before this to like start an actual physical product? Like how did you, how did you go from idea to execution?
0: So I started uh, covering beauty for the New York Times, and this is almost 10 years. I don't even, I can't even keep track of anything anymore. Um, 10 years ago, maybe. And so about six years ago, I started thinking about it there's a couple of reasons why i think after reviewing so many products you do have thoughts right you're like Mm -hmm. oh this product is so great but i wish it you know came in like this or this other product could be fixed if we fix the scent or the texture or whatever it was so that was one aspect another aspect was that the beauty industry completely changed so when i first started covering beauty it was really about backstage beauty fashion-driven beauty. It was really about the big names, the Chanel, the Dior's, Lancome's, you know, like the big, big names, Mm -hmm. Estee Lauder's. Um, And you know what? Those brands today still matter quite a bit. I think sometimes people, people discount how much these brands still matter But as we all know, there's a rise of clean beauty and there's a rise of niche beauty. And I think that for me was just super exciting because the way of talking to the consumer, the way of communicating beauty completely changed. Mm -hmm. And that part I got really excited about because it was creative and it was these exciting female entrepreneurs. I think it's really interesting when we talk about female entrepreneurship because in beauty, it's dominated by female entrepreneurs and Mm -hmm. they're amazing. Many of them are serial entrepreneurs. So I, I, really started looking into the space. At the same time, I got pregnant with my oldest daughter, Ellis, living in Brooklyn. And I was just obsessed with what was going into all the beauty products and all the things I was trying. So uh, I already saw some really great skincare options that were new. I saw some really great makeup options that were new and also hair care. And I just, it did not make any sense to me why there was nothing in fragrance. And because I think I was still trying all this fragrance stuff, being pregnant, and on top of the fact that I love scent. Um, that was really the start of it. It was I was like problem solving for my own self.
1: Was that the first idea that you had to create something? Was that the fir- or or was that the first one that was like the idea that you couldn't get out of your head? Because I'm sure that like as you're seeing all these different products, I'm sure that you had different ideas float through your <laughs> through your brain. But like when when it came to a clean fragrance, like was that just the idea that you couldn't get out of your head?
0: This was the idea that I actually put steps to. Okay. And I think because I put the steps to it, I realized there was something there.
1: Yeah. And
0: that's something I cared enough about to put the steps to, right? Because the truth is we're all busy, mm-hmm. right? And for anybody out there who's thinking about like starting their own line, it's one thing to dream up something. It's another thing when you start to take the steps, right? Mm-hmm. And I found myself taking all these steps, asking for all these favors. Like I start, I took a meeting with the Oribe a package director. You know, like these these steps that are not just like simple googling, mm-hmm. right? And Google is great by the way, but it's not enough. Like for anybody yeah. who's out there who's like actually like mm, maybe I should start something, that doesn't show enough to you that you want it enough. It starts to show more when you start to reach out to your network, when you start to like make phone calls in your spare time. You know, like that kind of thing is when you're like, okay, maybe I have that passion for this. And so I started asking people for all these favors. I mean, a lot of this stuff is really opaque. Like you don't know where people make boxes. You don't know where people make pumps. I mean, this stuff is not easily searchable. So it got to a point where I was like, Oh my gosh, I asked so many favors. of so many people like I have to do this. (laughs) Um, and, by people, and there's like a
1: level of accountability too. like, once you start telling people around you, it also like gives you that extra oomph because like, it's now they know what you're up to. So it's like on you that you want to execute, but also other people know that you're working on something. So it pushes you to execute even further, you know?
0: Yes. I call it
1: good peer pressure. Yeah. <laughs> a healthy dose of peer pressure. I love it. So what, what were those first steps? And also what was the space like? Were were there other, were were there any clean fragrance lines out there? Like what, what were you kind of like going into the space as like, were there like a few, were there none?
0: So when we launched, there were clean fragrance brands at like Whole Foods that were very essential oil-based And which were great, but just didn't offer the same scent experience as like a true fine fragrance. Mm -hmm. When I couldn't, I personally couldn't find a clean fragrance line that had like the same feeling as those like old school French lines or like any actually luxury line. Right. And so that was my goal is like, okay, let's have this clean fragrance, but have the same brand experience. Um, as something that's considered luxury or prestige. So mm-hmm. I personally could not find it then. And I do think that we're one of the earliest. I don't know when like everybody started germinating in their heads, but I definitely think we were one of the earliest clean prestige fragrance brands for sure. Um, so when we first started product developing, it was extremely difficult because a lot of people didn't want to work with us. Because if you think about it, one, we're small, we're brand new, not proven. Two were difficult. I came with this like giant list of no nos. You know, can't use this, can't use that. Asking ten million questions because I have a also, question about
1: that. Like, how did you know? How did you know what would like qualify it as clean? And like, what's what's the thing that's wrong about the traditional fragrance that like we should all be aware of?
0: Yeah. So in the U.S., we first of all, I first my first cut was like, okay, maybe this is my law, uh, law side. Is that we should look at global compliance, right? I think this is something that all users of cosmetics in the U.S. should think about, actually. Because because I test so much products for the New York Times, I, don't, I actually do not test any products that are not globally compliant. And you can tell by the way they list their ingredients and how they do their packaging, etc. And uh, if it's like an order, you can, you can kind of tell. Oftentimes, there's like things written in French, so like water is like water slash O slash, you know, aqua you'll Mm -hmm. know that it's like an international way of writing the ingredients. Because the reason why I say that is because the U.S. has no standards. So we have no group, a body organized to like overlook the safety of these products. So I always say, I always tell everybody the baseline should be like the EU rules plus Japan, plus Australia. The, The baseline should be globally compliant. The tricky part about all this is that some of the major brands actually have a different formula in EU and they than they do the US.
1: Yeah, what? it's crazy. So I know. Hate, I love having experts on the podcast, but I also just like hate knowing all these details. It freaks me out. Like yeah. I, I learned so much also about like the fashion industry and like Nordstrom Rocks and like how you make products specifically for those things. And it's yes, like, it really yes. Is so disheartening, but. It's also good to know, but anyway,
0: Yes. And so that makes it an extra level of tricky, mm-hmm. right? Because it looks like it's a globally compliant brand, but they're actually giving yeah. the U.S. customer a different formula. Um, so, But I always believe in compliance first because I just think that the average person Googling on Reddit or EWG or whatever, we're not going to be able to sit there and figure out safety because we're not in the lab testing these these ingredients. Right. Whereas like the, there's an, there's an international board for fragrance regulation called IFRA. We're definitely IFRA compliant. Some brands out there shockingly are not, even though they're clean. So, um, so that's where we start. I understand that different people have different risk tolerances mm-hmm. and different standards. So I don't want to like judge too much, but for me, especially because I was product developing when I was pregnant, I just, I just was like, you know what? There's things are regular, regular, regulated, for a reason. Mm -hmm. And so that's our baseline. Then on top of that, we started cutting out some ingredients that I thought were questionable. So for example, we don't use silicones. Um, There are some silicones that actually penetrate your skin barrier, but there's other silicones that don't. And we just choose not to because there's no good skin benefit for using a silicone. You can use something else that Mm -hmm. traps in moisture if you really need it. So things like that, that came, so as first you start with the regulatory, then you go like sort of like there's certain ingredients that people have been talking about for some time mm-hmm. and whether or not we should use those or not. So is it a perfect science? No, it's always a moving goalpost. Our no-no list is often updated. We always look at it. So it's not perfect at all.
1: So when, when you were in product development, like what were those first steps? Like, did you have someone in the fragrance industry that was helping you? Did you raise money? Like what, like what were those first, first steps, um, for the person that's listening that like may be interested in maybe not fragrance, but just like product development in general?
0: Sure. So I did not, I, I bootstrapped it initially myself. Because I wanted to figure things out in the beginning. And I know it's very common now to go out and raise a ton of money right off the bat, but Mm -hmm. I actually think there's a lot of great brands out there that quietly bootstrap for a little while and then they get that funding. And Mm -hmm. they just, it's not that they're trying to change the history, but it's like no one needs to know about the first two years when you're figuring out like,
1: your kids, your who your first, customer is? Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. So my, I would say my definitely my first year was sort of a wash. We had two products, two body milks, not even fragrances. Um, I was just trying to figure it out. I mean, I was, I was living in a fourth floor walk up in Williamsburg, and like literally just running products up and down the stairs. It was ridiculous. Uh,
1: How fun actually, though to like look
0: back. Oh my god, it's fun to look back now. I remember back then I was like, oh, I'm dying. <laughs> I can't lift these boxes anymore. Um, I remember this so clearly. We sold to Nordstrom.com way too early. We were a babies and we sold some body milks to them. And I remember because we lived in an apartment building, I had to run the boxes downstairs and they had a freight service, like a like freight ground service that pick up these boxes. And they're like they called me. They're like, "Is this an apartment building?" I mean, they usually pick up from where.
1: Right, right, right. It's Nordstrom. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my goodness, it was hilarious. Um uh-huh. So, so yeah. So for product developing was really hard in the beginning because I called all the major perfume houses. I emailed them. No one get back to me. Um, It was actually a favor. So uh, John Dempsey, who's at Estee Lauder, who I knew from interviewing, etc. We were friendly and we knew each other from mutual friends, etc. But I also knew him from interviewing him for the New York Times. I can't remember what the conversation was. At some point I was like, oh my gosh, I've talked to everybody about this line. I wanted to start and I can't get any, like no perfume mouse would call me back. And he's like, I'll make an introduction for you. Long story short, you made an introduction for me. And that's how I ended up with my perfumer.
1: Wow. Yes. The full circle and like network is everything, but that's a very cool story.
0: (laughs) Oh, it's like there's so many kind people in beauty. It's really a positive space.
1: I love it. So, okay. So how did you figure out what those first scents were going to be? Like how long, I'm curious also just like from a production standpoint, like how long does it take to actually get the right scent? And how do you even know what the right scent is to start?
0: (laughs) I know. So I had very decisive ideas of what I wanted for my initial scent. So one scent, I created for myself, which was Myth, and that's actually our global bestseller now, interestingly enough. Oh, um, I just it. wanted the, oh yeah, we'll send it to you. Oh, um, cool. It was to me the perfect, I love musk, but I wanted something that I could wear every day that wasn't too dirty, that was still that like skin smell. And so it's like the perfect white musk, is how I describe it. And then we had four scents at launch, and then we had a rose, which is like the perfect rose without smelling old. I find a lot of rose scents mm-hmm. to be very old. Um, fable, which is an orange blossom scent. And then raven, which is just very strong, moody, woody, wintry kind of scent. So it was like a peony patchouli. That one's very unisex. So, uh, so that's how I started. And the truth is you don't know, scent development is weird. Like you really try to hit dates, but sometimes you're working on a scent for years. So I try to keep all my lab samples and sometimes I'll go back to something. So I'd say the first, cause we launched a year and I didn't launch fragrance for it until a year after that. So I would take, I would say our scent development took a year for the initial scent launch.
1: Wow. That's yeah. so maybe fascinating. A year it's so fascinating. Mm-hmm. I'm also so curious. We touched on this in the beginning, the marketing of fragrance, because I mean, you clearly have written for the New York Times for your whole life. I'm, I'm curious to know what your thought process was like from a PR marketing perspective, being on the other side of the coin, being the one pitching your product um, and a product that like you can't, it, it's something that you obviously have to smell to really like really feel what this brand stands for. Mm-hmm. How did you communicate it? What did you, what did you find actually resonated when marketing your, your, New fragrance in a whole new in a whole new category.
0: So as you can see with my career, I can be a slow learner in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my first couple of years, I did not understand marketing. I'm an editor, so I understood editorial and content. I did not fully understand didn't fully get how to tie all that in. Mm-hmm. I would say as far as like really getting our marketing wheels fired, that really started happening. Oh my gosh, a year ago, no, to a year and a half ago, fully understanding what this all meant. Mm-hmm. And actually now I understanding the cycle of PR marketing, filling that funnel, you know, figuring out what that means even, Uh, I understand now that content actually is super important in that Mm -hmm. and I'm like, like, okay, I can use my editorial skills for that. But the way of thinking about it is quite different. So with fragrance in the very beginning, I thought that I could just get some really great press pieces, being the press person that I am, and be like, that's enough. No, it is not Enough, okay.
1: (laughs) Especially, Uh, it's interesting, like how it's changed from like even five years ago, how a press piece can actually translate into sales. And like now, it's really, it's really like one of five things that needs to happen at the same time in order to actually see something translate. It's so crazy.
0: Exactly. Back in the day, I had this antiquated view, and even then, it didn't work that well. You Mm -hmm. know, back then, it was like getting one of the big, giant glossies, getting a newspaper, and then you're done, Mm -hmm. right? or try to get on Oprah, we were talking about way, way back, right? Mm-hmm. And Or GMA or, or something like that. It just, just doesn't all work this way anymore. First of all, Oprah doesn't have her show. And uh, even if you go on GMA, you're not, the people just forget too quickly, and there's too many different content channels, and there's too many different ways of thinking about it. The purchase and so now is
1: completely different. It's like you need to hit them on the GMA, but you need to hit them from like 20 different angles, hit them with a sponsored ad, hit them with your influencer, hit them with the press piece. You have to hit them like 25 times before they actually add to cart.
0: Exactly. So that is something I really had to learn. And mm-hmm. uh, the good part is now I understand because I know what had great content, right? From writing for all these different publications. I just didn't understand the distribution side, right? Because mm-hmm. I never had to worry about that. Writing for the New York Times, I don't even think about distribution of content. So uh, the distribution of content is an interesting nuance. I think many brands now have to think about. That's why when you look at some of the major, major brands like a Huda or a or Glossier, et cetera, they're they're basically in some ways run like media properties, mm-hmm. right? Think of, think if you think about Instagram as just yet another media property, um, or TikTok, or if you look at all these brands, they they have a channel everywhere. Mm-hmm. They're basically in some ways media properties with product. So uh, I think that that is the the way forward, I guess, for, as far as marketing is concerned. I do think fragrance is a little bit different because in the beginning, I thought, again, the pretty photo, you know, description in some sort of print magazine was enough. So now, especially during the pandemic, I mean, when people really are not going to stores and you have to get your message across, we really, really, really request people that we see to, to describe. But that by describing, I don't mean just notes. We describe as far as like, what would you wear the scent with? right what would you what would your makeup look look like because i think that that is in some ways more descriptive than saying something has You know, peony rose in it because the truth is, a lot of people shockingly don't even know what peony rose ingredient smells like. You're you're
1: like nailing it. It's so true. It's like you need to like marry it with the with the ambiance. Like, are you wearing a coat? Like, are you going to the beach? Like, they're completely two different things. That like, if you explain in detail, it 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 gives the person kind of like a a insight into what the smell could actually be like. Um, But again, like, I think one of the most difficult things to be able to market and actually get someone to buy without smelling it.
0: It is. It is really difficult. And we also did increase our samples that we give to our retailers mm-hmm. that we give online because- That's what this, got
1: me, your sampling. Yeah. <laughs> you
0: have to get it in people's hands.
1: Mm-hmm. So so is that like the the number one thing that you've seen work?
0: Yes. So I think for we believe in our juice. Juice is a term in the fragrance industry that describes the scent itself. Mm. And so my, my, I guess, strategy in that sense is like, yes, of course, you just tell the story, tell the content, but we have to get the juice in people's hands because the juice is great. And so the juice is great. You get it into people's hands. They see the marketing, they'll buy it. Um, I think sampling works good, works the best when your juice is great sampling, you could have the best marketing in the world and you sample a lot, people still won't
1: buy it. Mm-hmm. It's so, it's so true. I mean, I'm a perfect case study for you. So definitely, definitely worked. I'm curious to know how, um, COVID has affected the fragrance industry as a whole. I mean, I, I bought in COVID, but I'm just curious to know what, what it's been like.
0: So we're doing okay. Uh, I think probably the indie fragrances are still doing okay. Is from what I'm hearing, but I do think that fragrance worldwide is down right now. Yeah, because I think most of it has shifted to skincare, right? People are Mm -hmm. obsessed with bath bombs and you know skincare and doing stuff at home. I think that uh, fragrance is interesting though, because for me, fragrance is it's such a mood changer. So whether it's your home scent or whether I I wear fragrance every day, even just like in my hair or something, you know, because it makes me feel like I'm put together. Otherwise, if I don't do the all these steps, I feel like COVID is that moment where it's like you don't do all the things that you normally do. I feel like something's going to unravel.
1: it's a slippery slope. Yeah, 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 a hundred percent. And that has been like the thing that has—I literally currently have a candle here, which I I, actually—I have two opportunities that I I see clearly that I'm sure you've already thought of during this time. One, everyone's having a baby, like every. Every single person is having a baby, like marketing specifically to people that are pregnant right now, or like about to <laughs> be pregnant, like obviously. And second, a candle, like everyone's buying candles right now. They're trying to make their work from home setting like something cute. Is that something? Try that you guys to be are decent.
0: Of? Yes, I mean, try. I mean, I think we're all just trying to make it work, right? Mm-hmm. So if something can bring us a tiny bit of pleasure during the day, like the scent of something burning that smells delicious as you're typing your thousandth email, yeah. you know, then yeah, I'm gonna yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah.
1: Are you? Is that something you guys are thinking of? Like, are you thinking of potentially going into the candle space? So, funnily enough, we have candles. It is our bestseller. Oh, you do! Yeah. Oh my God, what?
0: I know. Stop. Um, Her bestseller. Um, I'm at my desk right now, so I have some. Stuff I'm getting
1: here. myself one. Stop! I did not know you guys had candles.
0: <laughs> I don't know they're sold in store at Credo. I, I know they
1: sell a couple I online. I don't see them.
0: Yeah, I think we only still find fragrance in store, but uh, I love our candles because they're domestically grown soy wax. You know, they burn really clean. I I get them so tested because I have little kids, and also we came out with a little Pura set, which is like a smart home device with vials.
1: Genius! I have yeah, a so but you don't have to burn and it it just doesn't it doesn't smell strong enough. It's like I need something that like I walk into my apartment and it smells like fall.
0: Yes. The other thing is you don't have to wear... I'm that classic person who leaves things burning. I'm like, oh my God, I left my candle burning for like eight hours. Um, so I got this also because it can. you can set it to your uh, phone. I need that. And the Pure device to your phone. It's like an app and then you can like, it'll shut off.
1: Wait, I need that. I did not know you guys had all these different things. Oh my God. That one's brand new. Oh, okay. Amazing. Well, okay. So I'm curious to know, out of all of the things that you've done, you've had a fascinating career. What is the thing that like drives you today? Like, what's what is the active ingredient or or mission that you feel like you're accomplishing every day that you wake up and go work at Ellis Brooklyn?
0: You know, it's so funny. I'm not sure it's one single thing. I feel like at this point, I have that, and I'm sure you have it too, because you have your own company. I think you have that hunger, or you don't. Right. And so for me, feeding that hunger is one success, like success for myself, but also as Ellis Brooklyn has grown, I realized, and especially during this pandemic, I was like, we have to make a difference. And I, and I don't want to say this like in a cheesy mission driven way. We're obviously not a company that's mission only. But I do think that, especially even through hard times, that we have to double down on what our commitments are. And so as the company has grown more and more, yes, we're a clean brand. But for me, it's really important that we're sustainable because we are using all these really you know, resource-intensive natural ingredients. Mm-hmm. So we've really refocused that in the recent years on that. And I remember when the pandemic happened, we had this partnership lined up with Conservation International. And it was really scary because, you know, when the pandemic first hit in New York, especially, we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, like, were we not going to sell anything? You know, the two months, I don't know if you remember in March and April, people were dying. Like, how could I be marketing about perfume? No, and I remember thinking, <laughs> it was terrifying. Yeah. So I remember thinking like, oh my goodness, should I pull this conservation international thing? It's going to require resources from us we didn't pull it. And I'm so happy we didn't pull it because I remember when I went live, it was a partnership that went live on Sephora. So, um, it was so successful and it just shows you that like, actually when things go wrong, like you should double, not wrong, but tough, I guess. Um, you should double down on what your core commitments are. So I would say the pandemic has taught me that it's like one, you just keep, you keep that hunger going and you try to nurture that. You try to protect it because I think right now we can get really, really overworked. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two is the aspect, like, don't just uh, sure success is great because success has to be like a little bit more nuanced. Right. And so for me, some of my biggest wins, I feel like has been stuff like this. Where I get to do I get to have my cool brand, but I also get to go do something that I really care about. So that program was Save a Rainforest, an acre rainforest. So um yeah. So so that, I love that's what that. Doubling down
1: when things are hard, when you think that you need to pull triggers on things, double down on the things that actually matter. That's incredible advice. So good. Thank so you. yeah, this podcast is is um Is really to like talk to people that are working in their active ingredient and kind of figuring out the road that got them here. But it's also for the person who is at home that like maybe wants to start something. Or is just very lost right now and doesn't know even what to ask themselves, like how you did that sitting down and said like actress writing and artist, like that they don't know like what to do to actually identify what that could potentially be for them. So I'm curious to know what your best piece of advice would be for someone who's a little lost right now, but like wants to be this passionate about what they're doing every day.
0: So I, my advice to them would be, don't be afraid of the messiness. I think that when you first start and when I look back now, you're like, oh, wow, that was kind of charming. That's funny. I remember being a mess. I remember not like, I remember being so afraid that, oh my goodness, I'm going to be a cliche, right? I'm going to be this cliche person who like quit their job and like soul search in the city and, you know, and couldn't make it or something like that. And I think having that mess is the only way you can find out what you're truly passionate about the only, the one piece of advice I would say that I would do differently is I'd be a little bit more organized about my finances. Thank God I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have kids. I didn't have any of that. Um, but that would have been a lot less stressful if I had planned that a little bit more.
1: And I always close the podcast asking a lighter question. What is your literal active ingredient? What is something that you have to do, eat, spray, (laughs) whatever it is, like what's something that you actually have to do every single day?
0: Okay, so I eat an ungodly amount of chocolate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what, what type of chocolate? And like, what's your recommendation in Brooklyn?
0: So I actually, this chocolate is actually made in Queens. Oh. And I found it when I was pregnant with Ellis in Williamsburg. And uh, I'm not really sure it's widely available. I actually order it directly from the guy now. It's called <laughs> Raw Chocolate Love. When I say I'm into chocolate, it's not just like some passing. You literally like, have, I have
1: your chocolate tea. dealer on text. Yes, I am a chocolate
0: dealer. <laughs> um, it's called Raw Chocolate Love. It's this independent guy, Israeli guy, who makes chocolate in Queens. <laughs> Okay. And yeah, I ordered direct. I do think he sold at some like, you know, Brooklyn stores here or there, but I just couldn't get a reliable enough store. So I just went straight to him. Is it
1: like super, super dark? Like any uh, They salt? have
0: different styles. Okay. So the part that I like about it is that it's raw. So the chocolate is not cooked and it's not overly sweet. I don't love
1: super, super sweet. Yeah, so yeah. it is
0: dark. There's a double dark, which I really love, but there's a sea salt that I That's also my favorite, love. is dark mm-hmm. sea salt? Yeah. So I would definitely try the coconut, the sea salt and the double dark.
1: Amazing. Awesome. Where can everyone find you? Where can people find Ellis Brooklyn? And what is like the one product that you think should be like the entry point for anyone that's, that's trying Ellis?
0: Well, okay. So we're available at ellisbrooklyn.com. We're also available at Sephora and Credo. Uh, I would say that the open, well, I would say two things. So one, I personally love myth because I made myth for myself, which is that clean, perfect white musk. Um, I also love, love, and I don't, do I have one here? I love our CBD oil. (laughs) Mm, Oh my God. So many more
1: products than I thought. Yeah. So
0: this one is available at Sephora. And, um, and this, I made this because I wrote a story about CBD for the New York times and I just wanted to perfect it. And so I love it. It's so, it smells amazing. Most CBD oils smell not great. And also, I just love it now because it's cold and nasty out and I take a lot of Mm
1: baths. So, I love it. Amazing. And Instagram?
0: Oh, Instagram at Ellis Brooklyn.
1: Perfect. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. This was so amazing. I love your journey. I've loved that. It's kind of all over the place. It's like the the most fun one I think I've had.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not linear. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely
1: not linear. Thank you for being on and sorry that we're a little over time.
0: Oh, that's okay. It's because we're having fun.
1: I know. Thank you guys so much for listening. It would mean the world to us if you could rate and review us. And for more inspiration and quotes from the episode, check us out on Instagram at Active Ingredient. See you next week.